It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, October 1st, 2021, a brand new month here on the Guy Benson Show, although it is the end of the week. Happy Friday to you. I'm Guy Benson. Glad to have you along. We are broadcasting today from News Talk 1290 KOIL, Omaha, Nebraska. One of our affiliates, very grateful to the whole team here for welcoming us to Nebraska. I'll be up in Lincoln tomorrow for the Northwestern Nebraska football game. Maybe talk about that a little bit more later on in the show. But great to be in the heartland. And thank you, KOIL, for the hospitality. Our website here at the show, GuyBensonShow.com, GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every single day, plus bonus Benson on the weekends. Here's the game plan ahead. We will have Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick from Pennsylvania. He joins us later this hour. What is happening on Capitol Hill? Some conflicting reports about the Democrats and their progress. Apparently, President Biden is heading over to the Hill in just about 20, 25 minutes to huddle with House Democrats. Some people are suggesting that they might get a vote on the infrastructure bill at some point today or tonight. Others suggesting, well, hold your horses, maybe not. It's complicated. We'll see from the congressman what he's hearing from his colleagues on both sides of the aisle. That's coming up in just about half an hour. Governor Chris Christie will be here, former governor of New Jersey. He'll kick off our middle hour. We'll catch up as well with Dr. Manny Alvarez. A few major developments on the COVID front involving vaccines, therapeutics, mandates, and more. We'll get the latest from Dr. Manny. I'm also excited to welcome to the show John Andrasik, who is the lead singer. He is Five for Fighting. And he's got a new song out that I heard just the other night at a concert I attended in the D.C. area. He is going to be here talking about his life, his career, and this new song, which is a protest song against the Biden administration on Afghanistan. And I think you're going to want to hear that interview. Plus, Matt with sports coming up. Sort of a bro show today on The Guy Benson Show. Let's bring you a Fox News alert. Stats, coronavirus cases in the United States, 43.4 million confirmed in this country, all in throughout the entire pandemic. That is a lowball number. The good news is on the most recent trends on cases across this country, the count is down. In fact, cases are down 26% over the last two weeks in the United States. The death toll is up to 697,988 Americans dead from COVID. But that's a lagging indicator in terms of trajectories and curves. And now we're seeing deaths coming down as well, down 2% over two weeks ago. So those are favorable curves for sure. And it looks like at least in the south and some of the places where this recent 
case surge and the Delta wave was really hitting hard, cases are now falling off a cliff, as are hospitalizations and deaths, and that's very good news. The Dow is soaring today, up 586 points right now, currently trading at 34,430 as we have less than an hour to go in the trading week on Wall Street. We'll bring you the latest on that at the top of the next hour. Now, in the meantime, before we get to my opening monologue and a topic that I'm eager to bring to you, just a quick update on what's happening back in Washington, D.C., with President Biden, as I mentioned, expected on Capitol Hill in a matter of minutes to chat with House Democrats. We are not sure where things are going to come down. Progressives are still saying our demands have not changed. You've got two senators, Democratic senators in particular, Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema, who are sort of driving the bus over on the Senate side. Cinema apparently left town. She's not in D.C. today. But they don't necessarily need her on the House side. Pelosi wants to get her members to vote in favor of this bipartisan infrastructure bill first and get that chalked up as a win, although it would be potentially a bipartisan win. Biden wants to sign it, uh, to sign it rather, but the progressives, same as yesterday, same as it has been now for months, they don't trust the moderates to go along with their giant Democrat-only spending spree, at least at the levels that they want, $3.5 trillion. Joe Manchin has said he won't really go much higher than $1.5 trillion, although that's not a hard cap. His number is much lower. And there are some whispers and rumors that the Democratic leadership in the House, they are expecting potentially a vote at some point today. I guess that would mean before midnight. But we don't really have clear guidance on that because, yet again, I don't think that the Democrats have a clear whip count yet. If they schedule the vote on the floor, that likely means that they know that they're confident that they have the votes. But as of now, they don't, because yesterday we told you, remember my bet was on the air, my prediction was they weren't going to have the vote yesterday. And in fact, they didn't. Late, late at night, they finally said, well, we're going to punt this a little further. Now, if they've made enough progress and if the progressives are going to sort of climb down from some of their demands, because they have a lot of demands on dollar amounts, on priorities, on the sequence of all of this. If they're going to drop some of those demands, if they're going to be placated on some level, and they're going to then become you know, one big happy family again and vote for the thing, I think we'll know by virtue of a vote being scheduled. But that has not happened yet. And with the president physically coming over to kind of rally the troops, the question is, is that sort of a desperate measure? They're like, we really are struggling here. We need the president to finally show some actual leadership and make clear where he stands and see if people will follow that leadership. Or is this really just trying to seal the deal and get everyone sort of pushed in the right direction with some momentum and a word from the president rolling into a vote? We don't know that yet. Right now, it's all speculation. And as I mentioned, we will get more color from Capitol Hill from a Republican congressman from Pennsylvania coming up, Brian Fitzpatrick, later in the hour. I don't want to take my eye off the ball, so to speak, on another very important issue, which is the border crisis. There's a lot to keep track of these days. 
And I think that the Biden administration sometimes feels like they can maybe take advantage of all of the ongoing crises to just slip things past us because there's so much coverage and so little bandwidth for people to process all of it. They can just get away with stuff, although you look at what's happened to the president's approval ratings. The American people are at least on some level paying attention and they're unimpressed. But this is an update on the border situation and policy in general on immigration. We mentioned yesterday how the Department of Homeland Security under President Biden is again taking another stab, another bite at eliminating the remain in Mexico policy, which was so successful under President Trump once they implemented it. But the Biden folks came in. They said anything that's Trump, we're getting rid of because politics. We're going to signal to our base and to these activists that we're not Trump and we don't care if things are working or not. This is not a mature or adult way to go about your business, but it's the way that President Unity has decided to govern. So they threw in the trash can a successful policy and the border has gone haywire. And it's getting worse. And one of the potential saving graces from the Supreme Court, which said the way they got rid of the Remain in Mexico policy, the Biden people, was unlawful, that actually was a gift, gift wrap to them. It says, hey, you can put this successful policy back in place, you can blame the court, but you can maybe corral this problem a little bit. Because you're getting hammered on us, you're getting hammered on it, and the approval of the president, rightly, is just in the toilet on immigration. It should be. Incidentally, when I say that it's getting worse, as they are fighting to eliminate more permanently this successful policy that forces illegal immigrants and asylum seekers to spend their time waiting in Mexico rather than coming into the United States, being released into the United States, pending court dates, right? That was working well. They got rid of it. We saw the numbers in July. We saw the numbers in August. Multi-decade highs. Hundreds of thousands of people, more than 200,000 per month in each of those months during the high, hot summer season where you typically see the numbers come down because it's so hot. Not the case this year because of this open borders policy that the Biden administration has. And I don't know what else to call it. And believe me, you're going to hear more about this in just a second that I think emphasizes that point and justifies that claim even further. But I want to justify another claim first, which is that things keep getting worse. This was from NBC News and an anticipation from officials at the border. We've heard warnings from foreign governments in Central America saying, hey, this is coming. This is happening. This is what we're seeing. The Biden people don't seem to care. Now, Border Patrol officials and border officials broadly are warning that this month, October, is shaping up to be extraordinary in the worst sense when it comes to the border crisis. Listen to NBC's report in Cut 16. After those dramatic scenes at that crowded migrant camp under a border bridge in Del Rio, tonight, U.S. officials telling NBC News the Biden administration is preparing for an even more massive surge in October. Up to 400,000 migrants crossing the border, which would be a record, nearly doubling the stunning numbers we've seen the last two months, which were a 21-year high. So we're already at a two-decade high these last few months. And now the projection and the concern is that number 
from July and August each month could double this month. They are bracing for potentially 400,000 illegal border crossings in this month alone. And we're on August 1st. We're on, rather, October 1st. We're just starting the month today. And their indications, their fears, is that this number could go up to 400,000, which is just unfathomable. 200,000 is crazy. Right, a million and a half in the fiscal year. It's crazy. And the Biden people won't call it a crisis, and they say the border is secure. They just, I mean, over and over again, like robots, they repeat this stuff no matter how ludicrous and preposterous it obviously is based on the numbers. Even if it doesn't get to 400,000, for it to grow again higher than 200,000 and go up and up and up, it is a disaster. It is overwhelming. It is unsustainable. And it is the fault of the Biden administration, their rhetoric, their policies. Their rhetoric means nothing. Their policies mean everything. And clearly people are getting the message. Oh, and by the way, all these numbers that we're talking about, hundreds of thousands, these don't count the gotaways. I mean, it it's stunning. It's stunning. I shouldn't be surprised, given the incentives that are being telegraphed from Washington, D.C., with people, I think, rationally making a choice. Okay, we're welcome. Let's go do it. But it is still stunning how reckless and irresponsible this is. And then when we come back, there's this new development, a DHS memo with guidance on arrests and deportations of illegal immigrants. Would you believe that they are now encouraging American officials to arrest and deport fewer people who are here illegally, including a class of illegal immigrant that they have said in the past would be a priority for deportation. Another slap in the face to our national sovereignty and the rule of law. We have details, which, again, should be shocking, may not be, but they are disgraceful. We'll get you those details and those specifics as soon as we come back. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Stay on top of the latest news and information from Fox News. Listen and download the Fox News Hourly Update on your time. The trending stories you need anytime you want it. Listen and download now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. I'm Guy Benson, broadcasting from Omaha, Nebraska today. Thank you for listening wherever you are, and happy Friday. So I want to get to this. This is the update on immigration and the border crisis in the middle of the border crisis, right? Decade highs in border crossings, plus all the gotaways. We played you the soundbite from NBC News where officials are now worried in October we could see 400,000 encounters at the border, which is just mind-blowing. With all of that as a backdrop, the DHS secretary under Biden, Alejandro Mayorkas, right, he's the guy out there assuring us that the border's secure, he put out new guidance 
to DHS about enforcing immigration laws internally in the United States. And amazingly, mystifyingly, although very much on brand, they want to decrease enforcement. I mean, why not? If they're going to not really enforce the border, why would they enforce the law internally inside the United States against illegal immigrants? And I say all of this, I feel like I have to say this, I'm not a huge immigration hawk. They're turning me into one by refusing to enforce the law and making a mockery of our laws. And it's so unfair to the legal immigration process, legal immigrants who go about this the right way, and it's very onerous. And they give special treatment to illegal immigrants. So here's part of the new guidance. New York Post reporting. Quote, the fact that an individual is a removable non-citizen should not alone be the basis of an enforcement action against them. The seven-page memo from Mayorkas reads, we will use our discretion and focus our enforcement resources. So they're saying, we don't have enough resources, so we're only going to really go after very dangerous people who are here illegally, and we're just not going to prioritize or carry out arrests or deportations of illegal immigrants just because they're illegal immigrants. That's not good enough to get you deported. You have to be an extremely dangerous criminal now to have any worry that your violation of our sovereignty will have consequences. The story goes on. Most shockingly, the memo suggests there can be, quote, mitigating factors that argue against deporting an illegal immigrant who has committed another crime. And we knew this was coming. We talked about this, in fact, a few months ago. Remember where they said drunk driving convictions, simple assault convictions? There was a whole litany of crimes that they were suggesting illegal immigrants could commit and be convicted of in the United States in addition to being illegal being an illegal immigrant, having un entered the country unlawfully and not get deported. This is now formalized in this enforcement memo from DHS. If you are too old or too young, having committed a crime as an illegal immigrant, that might argue against getting deported. If you've been in the country for a long time, that's a mitigating factor. If a member of your family has some form of military or public service, that's a mitigating factor. If getting deported could impact your family in some way, that could be a mitigating factor. So I guess the message is, come on in. You have a good chance of being allowed to stay, especially if you come with kids. And if you stay long enough, even if you commit... Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you'll subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share additional crimes we are not going to deport you and for that reason we now have officials worried that border encounters might double this month alone this is a dereliction of duty from the fox news podcasts network download and listen to the one with craig gutfeld the co-host of the five like you've never heard him before you know him you love him you want to be like him subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com 
Guy Benson. We are back. It's the Guy Benson Show on a Friday. We are coming to you from News Talk 1290 KOIL in Omaha, Nebraska. Very excited to be here. Also excited to welcome into the show Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick, Republican from Pennsylvania. And Congressman, it was great to see you at the Five for Fighting concert last weekend. We've got John joining us on this show in our final hour today. Uh, But we're going to have to talk about politics here and budget stuff, unfortunately, which is less fun than music. Well, that's for sure. And uh, it was a good time and good seeing you, Guy. All right. If you could just give us an update on what you are hearing. I know the president has headed over as en route, I believe, to Capitol Hill to talk to the Democrats uh, among Nancy Pelosi's caucus to try to get people on the same page. The progressives have been, per, I would say, relatively successful so far at holding this thing up. They effectively scuttled a vote yesterday on the bipartisan infrastructure bill because they still have all their various demands in place for the bigger spending bill, which would be Democrats only. Pelosi is sounding more optimistic, it appears, that they might get a vote today on that bill. But the statements publicly from the progressives are kind of making it sound like nothing has really changed in terms of what they're asking for or insisting in order to go along with this. What do you know? What are you hearing? And is it realistic that there could be a vote today or tonight? So uh, I would tell you this guy. I mean, I, I talk to all my colleagues. I have relationships with, with all of them. And uh, I've spoken to members of the Progressive Caucus. I've spoken to the, the moderate Democrats, obviously the ones that are part of my bipartisan problem solvers caucus. Uh, this morning, it seemed very unlikely that they were going to get there. Uh, the break, the only change now which might indicate a shifting of the tide a little bit, is the fact that the president, as we speak, is, uh, is on the Hill, and he's going to be addressing the Democrat conference. The reason why many of us deem that to be significant is if he comes here and they either pull it or they put it up and it fails, it makes him look uh, worse uh, yeah, than had he not come. So, you know, is that an indication that there's some movement on the progressive side? Possibly. Um, you're right. There's been a significant uh, difference in the statements being made uh, by the progressives as compared, to, as compared to some of the moderates and the speaker um, on this topic. So, you know, I'd say it's 50-50 guy. Anybody that tells you they know what's going to happen today doesn't know what they're talking about because I don't think the speaker knows. Uh, but as of this morning, I can tell you with 100% certainty she did not have the votes. As we stand now, she does not have the votes. Does that change with the president's address right now? Uh, That's really going to be the question. I think that's a very good point about the president's involvement here, because it is a bit of a risk. And you laid out why. If he comes down in this very high-profile way to get everyone together and say, look, gang, here's the deal. I'm showing leadership, and this is what I want. And then his own party still kills the bill or will not commit to vote in favor of a bill to the point that they punt it even further. They've punted it once already. That would just make him look incredibly weak. So, I mean, are they in desperate straits where they feel like they've got to get this thing jump started and he's the only way for it to maybe shake loose? You know, is that the mentality here or are they doing this as part of some choreographed thing to create? a narrative that Biden came in and saved the day and look what happened. And now we're all working together again. I mean, it would be smart politics to do the latter, but I don't know if they are 
you know, sufficiently desperate enough, frankly, to be doing the former even with the risk if, if they don't have that second part tied up in a bow yet, right? I mean, that that's that to me is the big question. Yeah, and there's been this whole debate, Guy, about linkage versus delinkage. And, you know, th- many of us are viewing this separately and differently. Um, you know, they're, they're the only to the only extent that they're they're linked. It's it's purely political. One bill is being held hostage by the progressives in exchange for another. But substantively, from a policy standpoint, they are not. Um, and you know, I think the the progressives, ironically, are viewing this bill the same way a lot of the moderate Republicans are. That uh, if we pass this. Uh, this bill, which is really $550 billion in new spending, uh, it's, they're, they're saying $1.2, but that's, that's, the $550 billion is a plus up from the, the baseline uh, service transportation reauthorization. Um, and it, it's hard physical infrastructure, almost exclusively. Wait, hang it on. That, that was just some jargon. I just want to make sure that we understand what that means. And we, we covered the bipartisan bill that came out of the Senate with a pretty big bipartisan vote. About half of the money is new spending, and half of it, my understanding was... It was sort of leftover, repurposed from money that had already been allocated. Is that right? Correct. For example, okay. recaptured, um, unused uh, COVID relief money. Got it. And by the way, so uh, even according to the CBO score, and they're, they're, they only they only score certain things; they don't score others. Um, all but 250 billion of this is paid for, and we believe that all of it's paid for. The the uh, 19 Republican senators that voted for it, for example. Uh, unused unemployment insurance compensation money, the $300 a week supplemental that many of the state governors did not accept because they were having a hard time getting their people back to work. That's real money. That's a real paid for, but um, uh, CBO does not score that. So we believe the bill is fully paid for. And more importantly, Guy, I feel very, very confident that, ironically, if this this, this uh, hard infrastructure bill passes, it makes it increasingly difficult for the Democrats to pass a reconciliation. Certainly, 3.5 is off the table. We already know that from from Kirsten uh, Cinema and Joe Manchin. Uh, but what they're able to get across the finish line is going to become increasingly difficult because if you take all the popular parts of infrastructure out—the roads, the schools, the bridges, the dams, the levees, the 5G broadband—and you take out all the non-offensive paid-for's, repurposed COVID relief money, repurposed un, uh, unused uh, uh, un, uninsurance uh, employment compensation. Then all the Democrats are left with on reconciliation is "quote unquote" social infrastructure and tax increases, and with a three-vote margin in the House and a zero-vote margin in the Senate, they will not get there. I'm very confident so, of that. Because because there's the counterpoint that we've heard a lot of conservatives make is why would Republicans give any votes to Nancy Pelosi to make her job any easier to pass any of this stuff, given all the headaches that she's got going on? I think that that's a fair point, and I can let you respond to that in a second. But what you're saying is, okay, fair enough, but the other way of looking at this is if Republicans actually help Pelosi get the infrastructure bill passed, then the progressive left's leverage goes away. The moderates, more moderates in the Democratic Party, they've gotten a lot of the sort of the goodies that they want. They've gotten a political win and their appetite for spending a huge amount with all these tax increases and and painful pay-fors, that will be diminished if they've already gotten a victory in the form of the bipartisan bill, and that makes the progressive dreams of a gigantic package uh, less likely to pass. That's that's your rebuttal, it sounds like. Am I framing that well? Well said, Guy. And by the way, the prog- the reason the progressives are protesting this infrastructure bill is because they they know what we know as moderate Republicans, that if they pass this, first of all, we need 
we do need infrastructure spending. That's a given. Uh, we we spent a fraction of a percentage of our GDP on infrastructure as opposed to countries like China. So we do need it. But secondly, you know, there are people like myself that want to save our country from this $3.5 million trillion monstrosity that would create permanent government programs that would result in reopening the 2017 tax code uh, that I voted for. Um, that's precisely why the progressives are boycotting it. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens here. Uh, I feel very, com- very confident in the paradigm that I share and many of the moderate members of the Problem Solvers Caucus. And it's exactly why the progressives are trying to block it. They know what we know. Now, when we were chatting at the concert, after the concert, on Sunday night, I don't want to get too much into it because I don't want to reveal stuff that you told me sort of off the record, but you've already said here in this interview that you talked to a lot of your colleagues across the aisle, Republicans, Democrats, uh, members of the House, members of the Senate. You have something of a relationship with Joe Manchin, right? Joe and I are very close, yes. Okay, so... Without betraying anything that you're not allowed to say or is just between the two of you guys, he's obviously a huge player in all of this. He's under immense pressure. He has now revealed this memo that I guess was kind of held secret for months about what he said he would be okay with on reconciliation, a top line of $1.5 trillion with a number of different pay-fors, some concerns about tax increases, uh, some eligibility requirements on, on some of these potential new entitlements. That's what he put forward. He signed it. Chuck Schumer saw it and signed it, saying, okay, we acknowledge this. The public did not know, and reportedly even Nancy Pelosi didn't know about this document until just this week. Do you get the sense in your conversations with Manchin that $1.5 trillion is kind of his opening gambit, saying, okay, I know you all want $3.5. I'm at $1.5. Maybe we can meet in the middle. Or is his talking point that he started at zero dollars and the compromise he's already made is going up to one point five and he's not going to go any further? Do you think he might stick to his guns and dig in his in his heels and just stop at that number? Yeah, well, I don't want to reveal any any private conversations between Joe and I, but I think his public you know statements that he's made are consistent with with what he shared with me. Um, Joe is very very concerned about the inflation uh, issue. Uh, it's his top concern. Uh, and also, he cares about, you know, um, you know the Hyde Amendment, obviously. He was public on his position on that. But Joe is always worried about the inflation risk, uh, talking to people like Larry Summers. So Joe w- was part of our conference at Governor Hogan's residence in Annapolis back in April, where we sort of hatched this whole idea out. You know, can we come together in a bipartisan manner, in a fiscally responsible manner, to, you know, generate a hard infrastructure bill. They got across the finish line in the Senate with the G20, which is the uh, analogous group to to our Problem Solvers Caucus in the House. And, you know, we think it's a responsible bill, one. And two, we think it it makes it highly, highly unlikely that there's going to be any, you know, anything close to $3.5 trillion as a reconciliation to follow. Because if you take out all the popular parts of infrastructure and you take out all the non-offensive paid-fors, with a three-vote margin in the House and a 50-50 right, Senate, it gets, it gets they're never going to get there. Yeah. And I do wonder, let's just say your analysis is right and the way that you're reading this is right, and they get the infrastructure bill passed, and then you know Biden signs it. There are members of both parties who can say, okay, we're happy about this. Then they all turn to the reconciliation battle, which is a completely Democrat-only adventure, right? It's only Democrats, not a single Republican will vote for any of that spending. If Manchin really commits and says, no, this is my number, $1.5 trillion. it has to have the Hyde Amendment, so we're not going to pay for uh, you know abortions with 
taxpayer dollars. And that used to be a very mainstream. It still is. It's a very popular position, but it was a mainstream position within Democratic members of Congress. They've gone way out there in, in, in the radical side on abortion, where they now almost to a person support taxpayer funded abortion, but not Joe Manchin. So if he says, nope, that's a non-starter for me. $3.5 trillion. I'm nowhere close to that. I'm talking $2 trillion lower. I want these pay-fors. I'm not comfortable with these tax increases. I want these eligibility requirements. If he's able to shape this thing in his direction with the help of, uh, you know, a Kirsten Cinema, do the progressives eventually just sort of cave and say, well, something's better than nothing? Or do they go crazy at you know, what they would probably consider a betrayal here and blow up a giant government spending bill. That's the thing. At the end of the day, I feel like their leverage is not permanent and not that credible because I just don't think that they can bring themselves to say no to even a trillion and a half dollars of of government spending. Yeah. And I mean, the fringes are never known to be reasonable. So uh, reason would follow that they would take something instead of nothing. But who knows how they're going to react? I mean, look at how they're reacting right now with the infrastructure bill. Um, they're, they know how important it is. You know, the president said it's important to him. Uh, he's just arriving right now as we speak uh, to the Capitol. It's hard to say what the progressives will do, but I think your assessment, Guy, is right, that the uh, progressives' uh, influence is going to be marginalized uh, if this infrastructure bill passes, which is probably another reason why they're fighting so hard against it. But I do really believe that they know – um, they're viewing it ironically the same way the moderate Republicans are, that if we want to save our country from this spending spree, and by the way, the permanent programs that will be created, and um, I think it was Ronald Reagan that said the closest thing to eternal life is a government program. Uh, if they start getting them um, initiated, it's very, very hard to pull them back. But what you should watch for, Guy, uh, with Joe Manchin is inflation. He's worried about the spending and the top As he number. should be, and, and the inflation, and we, we'll, get, we'll get to this later. There's another uh, metric on inflation. That is a red flag today. All right. Feel free to finish that thought. Yeah. And Kirsten Cinema on the tax issue. Kirsten, I, I know her very well. She's very conservative on taxes. Um, and that's going to be the issue with her. So for example, I know Senator Manchin's comfortable with raising the corporate rate to 25%, but he's more concerned about the top line spending. Uh, I'm not sure Kirsten would be okay with that. So there's kind of a push-pull going on there as far as what their priorities are, but that's really what I'd... Uh, yeah, you know. and it's not in the ballpark of what the progressives in the House are talking about. I saw AOC was snarking yesterday saying, oh, well, this is really not that much spending at all. She was scoffing at Joe Manchin's numbers. Uh, and, he's, and she's like, if they're so worried about spending, why don't we cut defense, which seems like the only thing... The progressives ever want to cut defense, police, uh, you know, border enforcement, everything else goes up, up, up. And I just don't think AOC is in a position to scoff at Joe Manchin because he has a lot more power than she does and a lot more lasting leverage than she does. And that's the rub here. And if President Biden can come in and pull the thing out of the fire, at least potentially or partially today, uh, that'll be interesting to watch. But if they pass infrastructure, then there's this next hurdle. And are the Democrats going to become one, you know, happy family again on reconciliation for reasons that you just mentioned, Congressman? I think it's actually not that simple at all. Congressman Brian Fitzpatrick is a Republican from Pennsylvania, the first congressional district in Pennsylvania, at Rep. Brian Fitz on Twitter. Congressman, appreciate it. Thanks, Guy. Good talking to you. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. You're listening to Guy Benson. 
Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Just a few days ago on the program, I talked about how there were two prestigious left-leaning or left-wing publications, The New Yorker and The New York Times, that in recent months had sort of given favorable treatment or sort of normalized treatment to a book by this crazy left-wing professor who is actively advocating terrorism and sabotage on behalf of environmental causes. Like the political system and the electoral system isn't working well enough in his mind and from his perspective. And so maybe we should blow some stuff up like pipelines. That's the general th- thrust of his book and, and his thesis. And he got reviews of the book and sort of in an interview with The New Yorker and their podcast and a columnist in The New York Times wrote about it. Not in a way like, oh, no, we must denounce this. We do not support political violence. But, oh, isn't this an interesting argument? And I was concerned about the normalizing of political violence on the left. I know they only want to talk about it exclusively on the right. And here are these prestige publications doing just that. In a related story, President Biden nominated a woman called Tracy Stone Manning to lead the Bureau of Land Management in the federal government. She was just narrowly confirmed by Senate Democrats to that position. She colluded with eco-terrorists with this type of sabotage in acts of, you know, politically motivated terroristic sabotage in the past. And Republicans say she lied to them in the hearings about these activities. She is a radical Whether the Biden people knew this or they didn't vet her properly, I guess it doesn't matter because she was nominated and she was confirmed by the Democrats, so I guess we're okay with this. They also just uh, nominated over in the White House someone who has actually expressed enthusiasm about some of the Soviet policies of yesteryear, Soviet policies to be comptroller of the economy. Personnel is policy. And this is not a centrist or moderate administration. Another hour coming up. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Time for our middle hour on the Friday edition of The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you here Monday through Friday, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern, and around the clock on demand for free on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, wherever you get your podcasts. We, of course, recommend listening to the show as it airs every afternoon. And there are many ways to do that through our great affiliates, including... News Talk 1290 KOIL here in Omaha, Nebraska, which is where I'm broadcasting from today, and other stations, 
across this great country. You can also listen on the live stream or Fox Nation, odyssey.com, A-U-D-A-C-Y.com. You have options. And then, of course, there's the podcast, which is growing in popularity. Fox News alert as we begin the hour. The Dow ends the day way up, 482 points in the green, closing at 34,326. So pretty strong end to the trading week back in New York. Joining us now is Chris Christie, who is the 55th governor of the great state of New Jersey. Governor Christie, welcome back to the show. Guy, happy to be back. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get some uh, analysis predictions from you. Where is this thing headed on Capitol Hill with the Democrats at war with each other? President Biden's showing up now. I know he's now, I guess, addressing the House caucus of Democrats, saying we've got to do this thing and get together. It's unclear precisely what his message is. Uh, there's discussion maybe of a vote today or tonight on the infrastructure bill, which is bipartisan, but a lot of the distrust and anger is about the reconciliation bill. It's a lot of D.C. sort of, uh, you know, talking points and, and D.C. lexicon buzzwords here. But we are talking about trillions of dollars. How do you see this thing playing out? Well, look, I, I, I'm, you know, as we sit here right now, I'm, I'm looking at the front page of today's New York Post, and I see Joe Manchin on the front page saying he's gone from zero, which is what he thinks should be spent in this reconciliation bill, to $1.5 trillion, and he's not going a nickel higher. And I don't think he will, because I think, you know, the president made a decision back when he did the $1.9 trillion COVID bill in January. He made the decision to twist Senator Manchin's arm then and get him to support that without any significant compromises. And I am confident that Senator Manchin warned him at the time, next time you need a vote, don't come to me. You know, go to the progressives and get them to compromise. And, um, you know, I think that's exactly what Joe Manchin's telling him. And I believe that in the end, that's what's going to lead to um, the, the president having to decide, is he going to lean on progressives like AOC and the squad to do what they're supposed to do on this infrastructure bill and to lower the price of the reconciliation bill, or else it won't happen. Do you think he will lean on them, and will they agree? Look, I think he will lean on them because I think he'll become convinced it's the only way for him to not to, to be able to avoid a complete and total defeat. Uh, but whether they'll give in, I'm not so sure. They never liked Joe Biden to begin with, um, and they wanted Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren so this might be their way to get back at that loss. Although it's kind of crazy to me, and I was reflecting on this yesterday. I'm so old that I remember back when you were just first getting elected in New Jersey as governor, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, he put, in fact, Biden in charge of it. They passed a stimulus bill with the Democrats. It was a Democrat-only bill that was in the ballpark of $800 billion, and people were blown away by that price tag. We're, that's not ancient history. And yet now $1.5 trillion is seen as sort of like this, oh, uh, insufficiently low, moderate slash conservative position. I mean, this inflation hasn't gotten that out of control. This is a gigantic amount of money, but it's like we're in the land of make-believe where you just throw around trillion with a T like it's nothing now. No, it's absolutely true. And, and let's face it, I heard David Axelrod, David Axelrod, the, the, the mastermind of the Obama campaign say yesterday, I remember, I'm old enough to remember 
um, a time when $2.5 trillion between the infrastructure bill and the slimmed down, uh, quote-unquote, um, uh, reconciliation bill, uh, $2.5 trillion was a lot of money. Um, you know, this is ridiculous. And let me tell you, uh, Guy, I think every one of your listeners has to remember this. This is what happens when we lose. Yep. Elections have consequences. What happened in Georgia, this is the consequence of that. This is the consequence of grievance politics and looking in the rearview mirror and arguing about things that are, are absolutely unwinnable for us. It is we should be spending all of our time and energy and should have been in defeating Joe Biden and now defeating his agenda. Um, and we still have so many people talking about stuff that happened a year ago. Yeah. I mean, and we don't have the luxury of that because when Democrats win control of everything, this is what they do. And I, I really almost it keeps me up at night worrying if they had just a few more seats, just a few more. What could this look like? It could look so much worse. Right. They're constrained by a couple Democrats who are more moderate. I mean, forget any Republicans. We wouldn't be having this conversation at all. If the Republicans had the Senate and had won even one of those seats in Georgia, we would not be having this conversation at all. On the flip side, if a few things had gone a little bit worse for Republicans in 2020 or previous cycles, Democrats would have more of, uh, you know, more of a margin here, more breathing room for Pelosi and Schumer. And, you know, Manchin could talk till he's blue in the face about inflation. And I think it's exactly right for him to talk about the debt and inflation. And you'd have enough liberal Democrats to say, yeah, we don't care. You can vote with the Republicans. It doesn't matter. And. That's why looking ahead to 2022, this stuff is critically important. It's not just sort of, you know, a fun game to play where you root for a team. There are real consequences policy wise immediately and moving forward in the future. I want to ask you this, Governor, because I know a lot of your political brand is, you know, straight talk, leadership. I'm going to take questions, you know, ask me whatever you want, you know, and, and I'll I'll handle it and we'll go back and forth. This president, I saw the Republican Party tweeted out the statistic earlier today. This president has not taken a single question since Monday afternoon, and it's now Friday afternoon. And that's not unusual for him. I mean, during a weekend where there were multiple scandals and crises raging a few weeks ago, he went to the beach for three days. He does not answer questions on a regular basis, let alone a sustained number of questions follow-ups, all of that sort of thing, almost ever. It is very, very rare for him. I wonder what you make of that and your reaction to what obviously is a strategy from his team that it is better for him not to take questions and try to answer questions from the press, even a pretty friendly press, than to to attempt to do so. They've They've made the calculus that clamming up and avoiding questions is in their best interests. What do you think? Guy, I think that you're being really nice calling it a strategy. You know what it is? It's a capitulation to reality. He can't do it. He's a, And they are afraid to let him do it. And that's why they're doing it. It's not a strategy. It is a capitulation to reality. This guy is unable to answer questions in a way that's straight and honest and competent. You know, this is the guy who sat across from my colleague, George Stephanopoulos, and said, 
We will not leave any American behind in Afghanistan, and our troops won't leave till every American is out of there. And then did the exact opposite. He's the one who said he got no military advice to leave troops in Afghanistan and had the chairman of the Joint Chiefs and a number of the other leading generals say, yes, they did give him advice to leave 25 to 3,500 troops in Afghanistan. So he is incapable of answering these questions correctly, either because he doesn't know the answer or because he's not telling the truth. And either one of those is unacceptable for a president. This president has said a few interesting things, right? He will make statements. He'll come out and say stuff, but he won't take questions very often. He, at the situation at the border, which continues to get worse, one of the only things we've seen the administration seem to be upset about or evince any outrage over is a fake smear against Border Patrol agents with the whole whips whipping lie. And, and Biden came out and said they will pay. That was a lie that was amplified by the president and the vice president of the United States. He made that choice. He also seemed to be the one to pioneer and test drive the talking point that whatever the dollar amount ends up being all of this democrat spending that they're discussing right now it'll all cost zero dollars based on this crazy new framing that they're trying to pass off as oh oh, we're just talking about net spending and i mean it's it is not the way that the cost of a bill has ever been discussed but they're trying to will that into existence just like they willed into existence the whipping story, even after it was debunked. So Biden won't take tough questions, almost any questions at all. But he's happy, I guess, to pop up and say that the Border Patrol agents are going to pay for something that they didn't do and say that trillions of dollars in spending cost zero dollars. It's it's pretty astounding, actually, Governor. Well, it's it's completely astounding, but it's consistent with what they've been doing since they walked into the White House. Look. They've been an administrative failure, a competence failure, and so they need to distract. So the smear against the Border Patrol officers is an attack in order to get a, to try to divert people's attention from their completely failed border policy that is causing our southern border to be completely open um, with absolutely no controls at all. You know, his his claim that this costs zero dollars by saying he nets out how much he's going to increase everybody's taxes in America. Therefore, it costs zero. No, it costs five trillion dollars. You're just taking five trillion dollars or thereabouts, including debt from one group of Americans and deciding that another group of Americans is more worthy of receiving it. To me, that's socialism. But he's going to say he knows that's been unpopular. He's watching his numbers drop. So now he's going to say, well, no, it doesn't really cost anything. You know, they're just trying to distract guys. This is typical political games. But here's the problem. When Bill Clinton and Barack Obama were there doing it, they had the political skill personally to be able to pull a lot of this off. President Biden does not, never did, and certainly doesn't anymore. And so this is going to be a failed strategy, and it is going to lead, I believe, to the election of, a, of at least a Republican governor of Virginia, perhaps a Republican governor in New Jersey, and to a route 
in the House of Representatives in 2022 if they continue on this path. Speaking of Virginia and New Jersey, they both had kind of chippy gubernatorial debates this week. And perhaps the most significant line from either of them came from Terry McAuliffe in the Virginia debate on schools and education, saying that parents should not be making decisions about what's taught in schools, basically cutting parents out of the equation. We saw Biden's education secretary say something very similar this week, saying that parents are not the primary stakeholders in their kids' education. This is becoming a real pattern where you've got Democrats coming out and openly stating, Governor, that they kind of have this disdain or contempt for parents in the education process because they are so completely in the tank for teachers unions. We saw Governor Newsom in California announced today there's going to be a requirement, a vaccine mandate for kids to go to school in California on COVID-19. It hasn't even been approved yet by the FDA. And yet to this day, right now, teachers in California aren't required to get the vaccines yet. I mean, it couldn't be any more crystal clear where the Democratic Party's priorities are on education. And it's not kids and it's not education. No, Jill Biden is in the tank for the teachers union. She's a a member of the teachers union. And she has said publicly that as long as Joe is president, that Randy Weingarten will always have a seat at the table, the president of the American Federation of Teachers. You know, look, um, I, I dealt with this, as you know, for eight years in New Jersey. They, meaning the teachers union, is the most corrosive, cynical power in the Democratic Party. Uh, They do it with their money, which they steal from most of their um, members uh, by by force of law passed by compliant state legislatures, which say if you're going to work in the public education system, you must be a member of one of these unions. It's outrageous, Sky, and we're seeing it. But I think that was a huge mistake by Terry McAuliffe this week. I think he's going to pay, and he may wind up paying um, with a a loss in an election in November that three months ago I don't think many people thought was an election he could lose. But, look, Joe Biden is leading, and the progressives are leading the Democratic Party into the abyss. And this is just another example this week of what it's all about. And, And I think as Republicans, we need to continue to let them go. Chris Christie, the 55th governor of the state of New Jersey. Governor, we have to leave it there. We're up on a break. We always enjoy this. Happy Friday to you. Have a good weekend. And let's talk again very soon. You got it, Guy. Great weekend to you and your listeners. Quick break. Right back. It's the Guy Benson Show. You're listening to Guy Benson. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. I'm Guy Benson. We're back. Sort of the dual track madness here of what the Democrats are trying to do. We're facing real inflationary pressures, and they want to spend trillions of more dollars. And we're facing slower-than-expected economic recovery, and they want to raise taxes, including on businesses and job creators, especially on businesses and job creators. Backwards. Wall Street Journal reporting this today. Experts who are thinking this year's rise in inflation would wind up being a short-term phenomenon aren't sure how long 
quote-unquote transitory pressures will persist. Right? This is what we've heard from the White House. Oh, it's going to be quick. Transitory inflation. It's a lot of issues related to bottlenecks and supply chain stuff. Well, now it's not looking quite so transitory anymore. The journal goes on. Strategists who had predicted another strong quarter of economic growth are now cutting estimates because of bottlenecks, COVID-19, and other economic data, which continue to fall short of expectations. It's not great, Bob. On the inflation point, there's this from Axios today. Key inflation uh, gauge rose faster than expected in August. It's like these experts keep expecting things and the reality continues to underperform their expectations. And I know the White House wants to pretend, oh, it's all just completely beyond their control. They're just, you know, victims of all of this bystanders. No, they are not fully responsible for all of this stuff. No president ever is. But they are contributing in a negative way to a lot of it. And they want to make some of it worse if they get their way with these spending and tax proposals. The price of goods and services rose 0.3% in August for a second consecutive month, slightly faster than expected from experts. The measure grew 3.6% year over year, which is the highest level of growth that has been seen in decades on this metric. No wonder Joe Manchin is talking about inflation. You'd think Democrats who want to survive next year in a midterm election might think about that as well. Instead, they're focused myopically on this. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. We continue on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday, broadcasting from News Talk 1290-KOIL in Omaha, Nebraska. Very grateful to be here and for their hospitality. Very grateful to all of you for listening every day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. GuyBensonShow.com for the free podcast. Let's welcome back now Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor, senior health analyst. Doctor, welcome back. Hi, Guy. I want to get your take on a few different stories related to COVID, and I'll start here. I saw this yesterday on my social media feed, and I was honestly taken aback a little bit because I had not heard of this happening. I guess it is rare, but it happens occasionally. I've mentioned him before, actually, on the show in a different context, Peloton instructor that I do for exercise. Uh, Cody Rigsby is his name. He's also a contestant this season on Dancing with the Stars. He just announced that he has tested positive for COVID which may not be all that extraordinary, except he is fully vaccinated for COVID, double shot, and he had COVID in February, a pretty nasty bout of COVID this past February, and now he has a few symptoms and he has COVID a second time. So he had all the antibodies, sort of this super immunity, and he tested positive for COVID again. Is this an extreme outlier, doctor? He says that it's a very mild case, which is good, or are we going to have to sort of recognize that this is going to become an endemic illness where people might contract it repeatedly and 
we have to get used to that reality and try to build up as much immunity as possible to make these infections as harmless, relatively speaking, as possible. Because what's your reaction from a medical perspective? Because I was just kind of shocked to hear someone who had COVID already and had both shots, then getting COVID again. Uh, that was a new one to me. Well, listen, I, I, you know, the answer to the question, both of them are correct. You know, this is an outlier, and, you know, we really don't have all the but again, we test people for COVID, especially, you know, high profile people, people in the hospital, uh, people that have gotten vaccinated. But for some reason, you know, my daughter is fully vaccinated, but she has to take the COVID test every two weeks. So it, it wouldn't be surprised me if one of her COVID uh, t- screening tests comes back positive because, you know, you're, you're, you're looking for, you know, you're looking through a PCR, looking for these uh, fragments of a virus that can get embedded in your nose or throat. But it doesn't translate to the fact that this is a disease that's going to make you ill. You know, right. if you did the same thing for the flu, for instance, you know, we don't test for the flu on a regular basis, right? We take the flu shot. We hope it works. Maybe it doesn't work, whatever the case may be. But we don't go around testing people constantly for the flu virus. If we right. if you did, feel sick, you're gonna find if you feel sick, you stay home. Yeah, you stay home. So I think we know with the COVID being, you know, he being a, a contestant, and of course he needs to be tested as per protocol. I, it doesn't surprise me that he tested positive. Clearly, you know, you know he's a celebrity, and this is going to get picked up by the news cycles, and it's going to create the question mark that everybody always wants to look at. You know, the vaccines may or may not work, and all that. But to tell you the truth, this is not surprising for me. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that this holds any water in regards to the efficacy or the or whether or not, uh, you know, uh, the treatments that we have uh, are not efficacious and eradicated. We have to remember, COVID is going to be here to stay forever, ever, and ever, and ever. You know, it's part of the dictionary now. So, you know, let's just, you know, think about what is it that is not making people sick rather than whether the test for screening is positive. Yeah, I think that that's exactly right. And in listening to him reveal his diagnosis, he posted a video on Instagram talking about it. He said compared to his February case, this is like a walk in the park. He said he was very sick, as sick as he's ever been back in February when he was unvaccinated because he didn't have the opportunity to get the vaccine at that point, was very, very ill. Then he got the vaccine, and now that he's tested positive for COVID, he said he has some very mild symptoms, but he says kind of like it's night and day compared to last time. It's so much better, and I think that's the benefit of immunity, double immunity in his case. But still, he's a high-profile person, and... People start to hear, oh, my gosh, a second case in the same person who's fully vaccinated. It caught my attention. So I just wanted to get your take and get your reaction, doctor. Here's another story that broke earlier today. The governor of California, Gavin Newsom, tweeting that California, his state, will require all kids to get the COVID-19 vaccine in order to be eligible to go to school. He said this will go into effect following full FDA approval for children. What do you make of that? I'm very pro-vaccine. It seems like the data so far in the clinical trials for kids is is very positive and, and very encouraging. And it's a, a sort of a half dose for kids and a very efficacious results thus far. I also am not 100 percent sure about mandating vaccines for anyone, let alone children. And now I guess if parents want to have their kids even go to school in California, they're going to have no choice. Is that a medically sound mandate? from the government of California? 
You know, with all these vaccine mandates by politicians, you know, they they keep making the same mistakes over and over and over again. The scientific community is very bullish and very excited about the results of the pediatric trials. No doubt about that. But if you listen to, to the way that they interpret some of the information, they still want to get more, you know, more data, more experience. Um, and rather than them advocating mass uh, mandates of vaccine for children, uh, they're taking, you know, they're taking pause and it's an intelligent pause. So the politicians always get ahead of themselves and they, they make these announcements and they confuse everybody. And on top of that, they make parents angry, which at the end of the day, right. it doesn't really help the cause when, the, you know, when the scientific community says, look, get this vaccine. This is going to be like the measles, mumps, rubella and all of that. Uh, it's, it's not an issue. Um, you know, uh, it makes things easier. So right now, all of this COVID, unfortunately, is so politicized and uh, you know, I can't, I can't, I don't know why they do it. I'm sure that there's a political reason for it. Uh, maybe in their minds they're trying to get ahead of the game. I don't know. I, but I don't think it's a good move to, to say that at this point in time. Yeah, it just feels like a power play. It's not even approved from the FDA. Kids are overwhelmingly safe from this virus. I know some people get sick. Some of the kids end up in the hospital. A very, very tiny number die from COVID-19, although lower than the average flu season flu-related deaths from kids, but to then come out preemptively this way and announce this is going to be required for every kid to go to school, it's it just feels like a power flex, a power play. We can make people do this, so we're going to make them do it, and those who might object, that might not pull well with other people, and so we might have public opinion on our side, so sort of needling a certain group of people will work out net-net okay for us politically, so we're going to do it and maybe get a backlash that could help us politically. It does feel heavily, to your point, Doctor, about politics, especially with so much of the rhetoric and policy around kids and schools. It feels like politics more than science or medicine. And as I said, there's not even an approval yet from the FDA for children. I know that's likely forthcoming, but the mandate and forcing the issue and requirements are now coming out and coming down in advance of that. It just seems like everything is sort of done in a backward sequence, which is frustrating and, yes, angering to a lot of people. And I guess others have made the calculation that it benefits them in some way and they can wrap themselves in the banner of public safety and public health and science and all of that. Dr. Alvarez, there is a breakthrough that seems like very good news this week. It's a new pill. It's a medication from the drug maker Merck, which is said to treat COVID cases and has shown in trials that it cuts hospitalizations in half among people who are COVID positive. So these are infected people. They take the pill and it decreases by 50 percent their chance of going to the hospital. When we look at Regeneron and other antibody treatments, that's one way of attacking infections. Now it looks like there might be this pill as well, which is showing great promise is this part of the toolbox moving forward for the public health community to help us sort of get used to and ease into an endemic illness status quo as opposed to a pandemic status quo? Well, listen, I think that this is going to be a, a, a very incredible medication. Uh, remember, we've been waiting for an antiviral for the longest time. And when you look at the data, and I, and I saw it early this morning, uh, 
uh, in the trial that was uh, done in many patients with, uh, you know, with you know, high-risk issues, diabetes, hypertension, obesity, uh, and you look at a 50% reduction of hospitalizations compla- uh, compared to a placebo with minimal side effects, you know, this antiviral medication, which basically is a medication that does not allow the COVID virus to, you know, to divide, to, to, to grow inside your body. I think that this is going to be a home run. I think that this is going to change uh, dramatically the face of, uh, you know, the, the COVID incidences that we have in the future, if indeed after the FDA looks at all the information, agrees with the findings. And I think that I think they're going to do this um, uh, because basically what you have now, even in the subgroup that has not been vaccinated but tested positive for whatever reason, you can give this antiviral medication and prevent them from getting hospitalized and at the same time creating a natural immunity for that group of people. So in conjunction with the vast amount of Americans that have gotten vaccinated, you begin to develop a very sort of safe, if you will, uh, herd immunity when it comes to people that are not vaccinated. And I'm not saying that this should be a replacement for vaccination. Let's get that clear. I think, you know, I'm very pro-vaccine. So, but um, to have, um, you know, uh, uh, cases where even the vaccine has waned off a little bit and you're reluctant to take your booster shot for whatever reason when they come, you know, when the recommendations comes for the general population, uh, you're able to get a very quick, fast COVID test, easily accessible to you that you, maybe you can do at home someday. Uh, and then just go to your you know, primary care doctor and he or she prescribes this antiviral like we used to do in the days of Tamiflu for the flu or, or the other antivirals right. that have come for that and minimize the symptoms. I think that this is going to be a home run. I'm very, yeah, very, this, very this is being treated or discussed as sort of like the COVID version of Tamiflu to make it easy for people to understand. Doctor, last question. We've talked about this issue before. You're an OBGYN. That's your specialty. Very widely respected in that field in particular. The CDC coming out with guidance just in the last few days for pregnant women, really urging pregnant women to get the vaccine. I have some friends who are pregnant. They've asked questions about this. There have been some hesitations among pregnant women on this front. I know that some people in the media and even some of the CDC guidance and sort of PR materials are referring to pregnant people as opposed to pregnant women because that's sort of the new woke thing, the way people talk. We refer to them as pregnant women here because we believe in the science. Setting that aside, you've been saying that it's perfectly safe for women who are pregnant to get the vaccine for months. I asked you that question months ago. The CDC seemed to sort of reiterate that or or try to make a splash just this week on that same front. Was this a delay for some reason? Why is it that it took them so long to come out with this pronouncement when you looked at the data and you've been very confident on this exact issue for a long time? Well, listen, a couple of facts. Uh, Pregnant women, since the very beginning of the pandemic in early 2020, uh, we began to realize that this was a subgroup that was incredibly vulnerable to serious uh, consequences of COVID. As a matter of fact, we probably had the largest experience in in my medical center, in my department, with uh, pregnant patients coming in with COVID. From that, we realized that we had to amend the the delivery of care. When you have a a 29, 30-week patient who's pregnant with COVID with respiratory failures, now you have to make draconian decisions of whether to keep that patient pregnant, treat her, intubate her, or not intubate her, but more importantly, what happens to the newborn. Uh, And we published that data clearly stating that women with severe COVID that had respiratory failures, they were looking at the perspective of, of, of getting delivered even prematurely. 
when you look at also some of the numbers of pregnant women that have died with COVID, it's kind of statistical significant for a young subgroup of women that otherwise would have been the healthiest group of any study line. And But like everything else, you know, when, when women are pregnant, <laughs> people think twice because they think about the newborn, they think about the physiological changes of pregnancy. So, you know, it took a long time. And, and, and therefore, I think we lost a little momentum because, you know, I, I, I know that I participated in a multitude of meetings around the country with OBGYNs, and they wanted to get guidelines, you know, specific guidelines, because they're putting their, that recommendation on the line for their pregnant patients without really no support from the federal government or the CDC. Mm-hmm. So I'm happy that they made the choice of coming out and saying, yes, this is a very important group of people that should get vaccines. Uh, but I think we were a little late to the game. But listen, we're here now. I'm glad that it happened. And again, if you're pregnant, talk to your doctor, uh, but do consider getting vaccinated. Dr. Manny Alvarez, Fox News contributor, senior health analyst here. Manny, as always, we're glad that you're here with us. Have a great weekend. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Guy. Have a good weekend. And the Guy Benson Show continues after this short break. Guy Benson will be right back. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back on the Guy Benson Show from Omaha, Nebraska today. Appreciate you listening A follow-up on that conversation with Dr. Manny. Here's another detail about the vaccine mandate just announced today by Governor Newsom in California requiring kids to get the vaccine in order to be able to attend school. And I'll remind you that it's not even FDA approved yet. But just in advance, he is going to impose this on the children of California. And I am very open to pro-vaccine for children arguments. On COVID, on other diseases, we've eradicated childhood diseases, very bad ones, thanks to vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer by any stretch of the imagination. I do question the wisdom and the science behind a politician like this before it's even approved, saying that if you want to come to school as a child in California, you have to be vaccinated by my decree. And part of the conversation with Dr. Manny was, Are there politics at play? It's hard to imagine that that's not part of the equation. And I think underscoring that point is a note from a San Francisco Chronicle reporter, Jill Tucker, who points out on Twitter, Newsom has not yet required California teachers and staff to get the vaccine, even though their students will be required to. So you've got adults who are much, much more vulnerable, statistically speaking, to this disease than children. Children, by virtue of being children, thank God, are overwhelmingly immune to COVID-19. Overwhelmingly. But Gavin Newsom, in all of his scientific glory, is going to say the kids have to get the thus far non-approved shot to go to school. The teachers and the staff, well... Maybe not yet. If that's not politics, if that's not pandering, if that's not an illustration of who's really in charge in that state and what this is about, I don't know what is. By the way, last note, down in Florida, their cases continue to crash, just plummeting their COVID cases, which is excellent news 
The media has interestingly stopped covering Florida cases because the news is so much better now. And that plummeting in cases has happened after the schools open, many without masks which we were told was going to just explode these super spreader events everywhere. And Florida is going to descend into hell because of Ron DeSantis and a lack of masks in schools. And yet the opposite is happening. We should keep track of who makes these predictions and who mongers this fear constantly and maybe stop listening to those people. How often can you be wrong and still be treated seriously? Sort of a perennial question these days in our political discourse, is it not? Final hour of the Guy Benson Show is upcoming. Five for fighting. John Andrasik is here. It's a must-listen interview, and it's next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. It's Happy Hour. On a Friday, happy Friday to all of you. I'm Guy Benson. Our last hour of the week here at the Guy Benson Show, coming to you from drizzly, overcast Omaha, Nebraska today. In town to see my Wildcats up in Lincoln tomorrow evening, battling the Huskers. Big Ten action. That should be fun. Here at the show, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is free every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. That's GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which we love, especially on weekends. You've got to try it. TheLongDrink.com. That's their website, TheLongDrink.com. 21 plus only. Please always drink responsibly. You can find out where it's sold near you. They're expanding by popular demand, or you can order online, which is our course of action in our household. TheLongDrink.com here in the happy hour. And I am extremely pleased to welcome to the show... Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter John Andrasik of Five for Fighting. And, John, it was great to see you in concert in the D.C. area on Sunday night, and we are so grateful that you have some time for us here today to talk about your life, your work, and in particular, a new song that you've written. Welcome. Guy, thanks for having me. Always been a big fan of yours, and it's a pleasure to uh, talk to you after seeing you. Yeah, it was really cool. Kind of like half of Fox News D.C., was at that concert in Alexandria, Virginia. You told a story on stage that I thought was so cool. Before we get into heavier, weightier matters, you talked about how you were discovered by kind of like a talent scout when you were playing in a piano bar many years ago and how that person helped develop your career. And then there was an interesting punchline to that story and that relationship. If you're comfortable, would you share it with the audience? Because I thought it was a really cool insight into your life and your career. Yeah, you know, it's funny, the whole cliche of, you know, being discovered on on the streets of Hollywood um, actually came true for me. I was playing in a piano bar on Melrose and Vine, a very small piano bar. I would play on Friday nights, and I would have to pay a few of my friends to come, so they would allow me to play the next Friday night. 
And uh, a woman walked in and sat in the back row. And after my set, she came up and said, you know, I get people record deals. And it's Hollywood, right? So you hear a lot of stuff. Uh, and uh, I'd heard that before. Right. But promises, was, promises. Yeah, right. So, But she was very attractive, and it is rock and roll. So I said, all right, well, maybe we should work together. And turns out she worked for a very um, high-level publishing company, EMI Publishing. And she had signed some... A successful act like Jewel and No Doubt. And uh, so she knew what she was doing. And she would always tell me that, you know, we need the song, the song, because that's uh, how you get a record deal. You, you have to have the song. Everybody's searching for the song, which certainly implied that I did not have the song yet. Um, so I tried to write songs to uh, appease her. I even wrote a song called The Song that she didn't think was funny. <laughs> and um, uh, But finally, I played her a song that actually I, I almost didn't play here because it was a song that could never be on the radio. It was a sad song about the per- perspective of uh, a small child uh, of divorce. And it's a heavy song. And she at the end said, uh, that's the song. And believe it or not, uh, she played it for Brian Koppelman at uh, EMI Records. And off I, off I went. And uh, your, your postscript uh, line after I played the song is, I did, after all that adventure, end up marrying her, and she's been the love of my life, and my supporter next year will be married 25 years. Wow. So it's been, uh, it's been great to share my whole ride with her. I love that story so much. I knew the punchline. I knew the ending and what was coming. I did not know on Sunday night when you told it, but sitting here now, and I still smiled when you said that you ended up getting married. You've been together for almost 25 years. That's just a spectacular story. But on that point, of course, she had a point in your business to really break through as a success and to be on the charts and to get radio play, you need the song. And for you, as you look back on your biggest hits, what do you think is the song for you? Is it Superman? I'm more than a bird, I'm more than a plane, I'm more than some pretty face beside a train. Is it 100 years? Which was the biggest one? And how did you sort of have that moment as an artist where you said, oh, my gosh, I've had my first hit. I'm having some success. I don't want to end up as a one-hit wonder. You, of course, have had a number of hits that have gotten radio play, and people know you. People know Five for Fighting. How did you go about not psyching yourself out and just going about your business and cranking out a second and then a third and then a fourth hit? That's a good question. You know, I actually was fortunate there was a song before Superman called Easy Tonight. And it wasn't a big hit, but it was successful on the songwriter stations. It was a number one AAA song. And it just gave us enough uh, leverage to go for another song. And that song was Superman. I'd, I'd had a sense with Superman that when people heard it, they reacted. And I think it was successful for a couple of reasons. One, when it came out, it was like nothing else. You know, it was the late 90s, which was Lil Affair, boy bands, grunge music, and it wasn't the age of Billy Joel and Elton John. The piano was not on the radio. So when it started uh, resonating, I think it had a unique slot. And then, of course, after 9-11, it became one of the songs to kind of provide solace for the nation for 9-11, and then it went to a completely different spot that nobody could have imagined. And then, you're right, after 100 years, I mean, after Superman, I was the Superman guy. I wasn't a songwriter. (laughs) How do you follow that song, especially with a song that has a certain context within the culture that, you know, can never be achieved again, right. hopefully. Right. Um, and I spent two years trying to write the follow-up to Superman. And, you know, a lot of artists make the mistake of they try, to, they try to regurgitate their hit. They try to write the same song, make it a little different, and it doesn't work. And I, I knew I had to have something that 
uh, it's still that guy, but it had to stand on its own. And it took, as I said, over two years. I wrote a hundred songs. Finally, I had hundred years. And um, you know, Superman was a gift. It came in an hour. You know, hundred years took me four months. You know, to make sure everything was right. And still, you don't know. But luckily for me, you know, hundred years was another popular song. And then uh, I became a songwriter, not a one-hit wonder. And no, uh, so, hey, there's worse things than being a one-hit wonder guy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a zero-hit wonder is more worse than a, a no-hit <laughs> one-hit wonder. Right. But but yeah, I've been I've been just so blessed to have my songs, you know, be embraced through the you know through the first decade of the 2000s. And uh, I don't know which one. I mean, certainly Superman's my baby, and without that one, we probably wouldn't be talking. But you know, there's other songs that find their way into other uh, niches of the, the culture that are equally as important to me. You mentioned Billy Joel and Elton John in that previous answer. Billy Joel is my favorite musical artist. I've seen him half a dozen times in concert. I cannot get enough Billy Joel. My first ever concert in my life, my friend Dan took me to see Billy and Elton John together in the face-to-face tour in Philadelphia. We drove down and... For a first concert, that's pretty good. Billy Joel and Elton John, they were singing each other's songs like every other verse for a while. It was just amazing. Do you have a favorite musical artist from whom you drew inspiration, sort of your go-to? Well, that is, it's hard to top that for your first concert. I'm, right? I'm, a, I'm, older, I'm older than you, but my first concert was Billy Joel at the Fabulous hey. Forum in Los Angeles. Cool. Uh, Gla- the Glass Houses tour. I was 15 years old. And I watched him do his thing. That was kind of Billy at his height. And I wanted to do that. And certainly I've seen Elton a dozen times. And again, one of the most prolific, amazing melodists we've ever seen. And, but no, I'm, I'm from those piano guys. You know, I'm from the age of James Taylor, Joni Mitchell, the Beatles. Uh, I'm a rock guy. I love The Who. I love Zeppelin. I kind of come from that age. But I like the storytellers, right? The, uh, the Cats in the Cradle, you know, songs that have a beginning, a middle, and an end. And that's where I kind of write from, and I think that's probably why, you know, folks that kind of embrace that kind of songwriting relate to my tunes. Glass Houses, so that would be You May Be Right, Don't Ask Me yeah. Why, a couple underrated songs, All for Lena, I Don't Want to Be Alone. We could talk Billy Joel, and let's do it in private sometime. But I want to talk <laughs> about you and your new song. And before we talk about that song, I'll put you on the spot, and you don't have to have a perfect answer to this because it's probably hard. Nevertheless, do you have a favorite song of yours? If you were to perform it one last time, and they said, John, you get to play one song, your last play, your favorite song, what would it be? Yeah, that's hard. But, you know, it, it, could, it could easily be 100 years for the reason that I'm always in the song somewhere. And if it's my last breath, I'm in that song in the last note. Um, and we're always, there's always a place for everyone in that song. And again, Superman, I couldn't write, you know, these days it's easy to be me. I've learned it's very easy to be me. And, and after meeting people with real problems, mm-hmm. but hundred years, I always find myself somewhere in that tune. And it's, uh, it's one I think that folks uh, relate to. So it, it would probably be hundred years. John Andrasik of five for fighting our guest here on the guy Benson show in the happy hour. When we come back a brand new song, Perhaps a political song. John says it's a moral song. It's about Afghanistan, and he has just released it. We will play it for you in its entirety and get John's commentary on The Guy Benson Show. You do not want to miss this. It's next. The Guy Benson Show. More next. 
Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's the Guy Benson Show. It's the happy hour. And if you're listening on the broadcast, that's Riddle by Five for Fighting. Maybe my favorite Five for Fighting song. Our guest is John Androsik of Five for Fighting. And as I told you earlier in the week, a group of us were able to go and see John perform in this great string quartet. There were arrangements for his songs. It was really great at this small theater in Alexandria, Virginia on Sunday night. And after everything was done, after the major songs were over and he was wrapping up his encore, he brought out an acoustic guitar and performed a new song that he wrote in anger about the American withdrawal from Afghanistan, a topic that we have covered a lot here on this show. And I know many of you are disgusted and angry and in some ways humiliated for the country. And John had a lot of those same emotions, and he channeled that into writing a song called Blood on My Hands, which he performed. And there was there was an edge to him as he sang and performed this song live. He is with us on the air here. John, is there anything that you want to quickly set up before people listen? We're going to play this song, Blood on My Hands. Quick setup from you. I would just say it's a moral message. It's not a political one. And I hope people listen to it in that context. And with that, let's listen together. Blood on my hands by Five for Fighting. Got blood on my hands. Got blood on my hands. And I don't understand. What's happening? There's blood on these hands And still Americans Left her the Taliban Without the letters in play 
Blood on My Hands by Five for Fighting. John Andrasik is with us. And, John, we have a few minutes left here. If you just want to maybe tell the audience about your creative process, the message there is pretty straightforward. But I know that you have some thoughts that you would like to add about how this song came together. Yeah, I take no joy in writing it, take no joy in releasing it. wasn't intending on do it. Certainly when our 13 troops were killed, I was angry. But the song didn't form until I uh, was talking to a friend who was organizing evacuations uh, after our troops left. And I, I said, are you telling me you're risking your life to go rescue our citizens and allies that we left behind? And she said, yes. The verses wrote themselves there. And then when the president said we had an extraordinary success and million Austin echoed that political narrative, I was very concerned. So the song really started with uh, a, a call for recognizing that we broke the American promise and that accountability matters. But, Guy, it's expanded even since we've spoken, because in the last few shows, I have veterans and military families literally coming up to me, can't even speak. They are so angry at uh, the lack of accountability for, uh, for Millie and Austin and the dishonor they've done to the uniform and ashamed that we left Afghan allies that they fought beside, some saved their lives, to the Taliban. So it's now become kind of a mission for me to speak the voice of our military. And uh, as I said, it's not a political song. If Donald Trump were president and we were here, I would write the same songs. The name would change. And you know what? I bet you would still play it because this is bigger than any political, you know, culture war bullet. Uh, we have a national shame and we have to admit our complicity in it. John Andrasik of Five for Fighting, my guest here on The Guy Benson Show, that song is called Blood on My Hands. You can check it out. You can buy it. You can look it up. John, we so appreciate the invite to the concert last weekend and your willingness to spend some time with us here on this Friday. Thank you very much, and let's talk again soon. Anytime, Guy. Have a great weekend, and good luck at the game. Thank you. Go Cats. It's the Guy Benson Show. Back after this. BensonShow.com. 
happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. Happy Friday to all of you. Earlier today, we spoke with Governor Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey. Always a good time. It's always wide-ranging with him. Today, no exception. Here's part of my chat with Governor Christie. All right, let's get some uh, analysis, predictions from you. Where is this thing headed on Capitol Hill with the Democrats at war with each other? President Biden's showing up now. I know he's now, I guess, addressing the House caucus of Democrats saying we've got to do this thing and get together. It's unclear precisely what his message is. Uh, there's discussion maybe of a vote today or tonight on the infrastructure bill, which is bipartisan. But a lot of the distrust and anger is about the reconciliation bill. It's a lot of D.C. sort of, uh, you know, talking points and, and D.C. lexicon buzzwords here. But we are talking about trillions of dollars. How do you see this thing playing out? Well, look, I, I, you know, as we sit here right now, I'm, I'm looking at the front page of today's New York Post, and I see Joe Manchin on the front page saying he's gone from zero, which is what he thinks should be spent in this reconciliation bill, to $1.5 trillion, and he's not going a nickel higher. And I don't think he will, because I think, you know, the president made a decision back when he did the $1.9 trillion COVID bill in January he made the decision to twist Senator Manchin's arm then and get him to support that without any significant compromises. And I, I'm confident that Senator Manchin warned him at the time, next time you need a vote, don't come to me. You know, go to the progressives and get them to compromise. And, um, you know, I think that's exactly what Joe Manchin's telling him. And I believe that in the end, that's what's going to lead to um, the, the president having to decide is he going to lean on progressives like AOC and the squad to do what they're supposed to do on this infrastructure bill and to lower the price of the reconciliation bill, or else it won't happen? Do you think he will lean on them, and will they agree? Look, I think he will lean on them because I think he'll become convinced it's the only way for him to not to, to be able to avoid a complete and total defeat. Uh, but whether they'll give in, I'm not so sure. They never liked Joe Biden to begin with. Um, and they wanted Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren. So this might be their way to get back at that loss. Although it's kind of crazy to me, and I was reflecting on this yesterday. I'm so old, and I remember back when you were just first getting elected in New Jersey as governor, Barack Obama and Joe Biden, he put, in fact, Biden in charge of it, they passed a stimulus bill with the Democrats. It was a Democrat-only bill that was in the ballpark of $800 billion, and people were blown away by that price tag we're that's not ancient history and yet now 1.5 trillion dollars is seen as sort of like this oh uh insufficiently low moderate slash conservative position i mean this inflation hasn't gotten that out of control this is a gigantic amount of money but it's like we're in the land of make-believe where you just throw around trillion with a t like it's nothing now no, it's absolutely true. And, and let's face it, I heard David Axelrod, David Axelrod, the, the, the mastermind of the Obama campaign, say yesterday, I remember, I'm old enough to remember um, a time when $2.5 trillion between the infrastructure bill and the slimmed down, uh, quote unquote, um, uh, reconciliation bill, uh, $2.5 trillion was a lot of money. Um, you know, this is ridiculous. And let me tell you, uh, Guy, I think every one of your listeners has to remember this. This is what happens when we lose. 
Yep. Elections have consequences. What happened in Georgia, this is the consequence of that. This is the consequence of grievance politics and looking in the rearview mirror and arguing about things that are, are absolutely unwinnable for us. It is we should be spending all of our time and energy and should have been in defeating Joe Biden and now defeating his agenda. Um, and we still have so many people talking about stuff that happened a year ago. Yeah. I mean, and we don't have the luxury of that because when Democrats win control of everything, this is what they do. And I, I really almost it keeps me up at night worrying if they had just a few more seats, just a few more. What could this look like? It could look so much worse. Right. They're constrained by a couple Democrats who are more moderate. I mean, forget any Republicans. We wouldn't be having this conversation at all. If the Republicans had the Senate and had won even one of those seats in Georgia, we would not be having this conversation at all. On the flip side, if a few things had gone a little bit worse for Republicans in 2020 or previous cycles, Democrats would have more of, uh, you know, more of a margin here, more breathing room for Pelosi and Schumer. And, you know, Manchin could talk till he's blue in the face about inflation. And I think it's exactly right for him to talk about the debt and inflation and you'd have enough liberal democrats to say yeah we don't care you can vote with the republicans it doesn't matter and that's why looking ahead to 2022 this stuff is critically important it's not just sort of you know a fun game to play where you root for a team there are real consequences policy-wise immediately and moving forward in the future my full interview with Chris Christie available online. GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is always free. GuyBensonShow.com. FoxNewsPodcasts.com. Or wherever you get your podcasts. On demand, no charge to you. Bonus Benson coming up on the weekend as usual. When we come back, my travel early this morning jogged a memory that I had forgotten about, but I want to share. It's relevant today. Plus a little preview of some sports this weekend. You don't want to miss it. It's our final home stretch of the week. Straight ahead. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch from Nebraska today, KOIL, our affiliate out here. Thank you very much to all the folks. In particular, Neil, who's been incredibly gracious and helpful today, getting me all set up here in the studio in Omaha. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. I should mention the podcast is free, bonus Benson coming up on the weekends. The reason, or at least part of the reason, that I'm in Nebraska is to watch some college football. It'll be the first time I will see my Northwestern Wildcats in person in a couple of years, since 2019, which was a season to forget. We'll see how things go. The Cats are big underdogs in Lincoln tomorrow night. Before we get to our final guest and talk a little bit about sports, I just want to recount a story that I had forgotten completely until my flight today to get to Nebraska. I got up before dawn to catch the first flight out of D.C. to Chicago and then the connection from Chicago to Omaha. And it was a relatively tight turnaround at O'Hare. It was fine. I was reminded of the last time I did almost the exact same itinerary. Early morning flight, connecting through Chicago, coming to Omaha, I want to say like 2013, 2014. It's been a while. But I was coming here for a speaking engagement, and I was exhausted because I had to get up early. I'm not a morning person. I got on the connecting flight, a smaller plane, to fly from Chicago to Omaha, and I fell asleep. And I can really sleep on planes. 
It is a skill that I have for which I am grateful. I sleep on planes like it's my job. And sometimes I sleep heavily on planes. Like not to get too gross, but it has happened where I am woken up by the impact of landing and I have drooled on myself. I am like that far gone asleep on these planes. So on that particular flight that day, I did not wake up upon landing, but I woke up just as we were approaching. So you could see, you know, the ground. We were pretty close to landing. I looked out the window and I'd been fast asleep. And I said, wow, Omaha is a lot more built up than I thought it would be. I had not been to Omaha, Nebraska. I said, you know, this is, this is a pretty big city here. It's a more density than I was expecting. I guess the cornfields must be maybe a few miles out because there's a lot of residential neighborhoods. And then big highways and tons of cars. I'm like, okay, I mean, this is a fairly major city. It's just bigger than I was expecting. And we land and we're taxiing. And I felt like I was in the twilight zone because I'm staring at the terminal and I'm thinking, I swear to God, that's O'Hare. But but that's where I just came from. Like, am I half asleep here? What's going on? As it turned out, midway through the flight, there was some sort of minor mechanical issue. And they realized that they wouldn't have the parts to fix it in Omaha. So the decision was made to turn the plane back around and land again at O'Hare and put us on a different plane and fly back to Omaha. I slept through all of this. The announcements, people being mad about it, all of it. I had no idea. So imagine just the weirdness of having taken off, fallen asleep, and then you feel like your brain is tricking you when you are landing in a place that, in your mind, has to be your destination, but in fact, it's the origin city of the flight. It was a very surreal moment because it did take me a solid maybe 30 seconds of absolute confusion and bafflement to figure out what happened. In fact, what I did was I sort of flagged over a flight attendant. I'm like, I'm pretty sure we're in Chicago. He's like, oh, yeah, you slept through it. Here's the deal. (laughs) That did not happen today. I did sleep on the flight, but we made it in one fell swoop easy. Point A to point B to point C, no drama. And hopefully there will be some drama up in Lincoln tomorrow night for my Northwestern Wildcats. And the, it would seem improved, Nebraska Cornhuskers, even though their record doesn't reflect it, I think their body of work so far is actually pretty impressive. But we'll see. It would be an upset for Northwestern, almost two touchdown underdogs. Let's bring in Matt Napolitano, sports reporter, Fox News Headlines 24-7. You can hear him on Sirius XM Channel 115, at Matt Napolitano on Twitter. Matt, good to have you back. Yeah, good to be back. I had no idea you were like that heavy of a sleeper on the flights. I mean, I thought I was bad. That's how. <laughs> well, I mean, in in my defense, I was up very early. And why on earth would you ever assume that you're coming in for a perfectly leisurely, normal seeming landing after you've been asleep for quite some time at the exact same airport where you took off, you know, an hour and a half ago? It it was an understandable, I think, confusing situation for me to be in, but it was because I guess even with all of the goings-on, I was just blissfully unaware because I was deeply slumbering on the plane, always in my window seat, leaning up against the wall. All right, enough about that, Matt. Let's get to brass tacks and sports. A couple interesting matchups 
in college football this weekend. Number two, Georgia, with the Bulldogs looking dominant so far this year. They are playing number eight, Arkansas. The Razorbacks kind of for real, or at least appearing to be for real thus far. Do the Arkansas Razorbacks have a chance at beating the Bulldogs? I'd say they absolutely do have a chance, and the main reason why is because Georgia hasn't really been all that tested. Yeah, you can argue they went up against Clemson, 10-3 game. Defense has been incredible all year long, but other than that first game against the Tigers, that hasn't really been much for UGA, whereas Arkansas has had to take down two top 25 opponents, Texas and Texas A&M, made the Aggies look foolish last week. Uh, Georgia's defense, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be going down to the wire. The one thing I think will have an impact that we'll see is on the Bulldogs for the offensive side of the ball. JT Daniels dealing with a minor lat issue. So they may have to rely on the running game a little bit more. It's going to go down to the wire. I'm going to give it to Georgia, but this is going to be a fun one to watch. And you know what? Kudos to Sam Pittman. Arkansas is now a fun team to watch for the first time in some time. Yeah, they're relevant, which is not always the case down in Fayetteville. Meanwhile, number 9 Notre Dame, they're now in the top 10, having dismantled Wisconsin at Soldier Field in Chicago last weekend. They're facing number 7 Cincinnati, so the Bearcats ranked higher than the Fighting Irish coming into this one. What's your prediction there? You know, we got four matchups this week within the top 25, and to me, this is going to be the most decisive one. I think Cincinnati gets a statement win on the road against Notre Dame. Jack Cohn's not coming in at 100%. Notre Dame's offensive line hasn't looked the best. I think this is a huge opportunity for that Cincinnati defense to kick in and really show that they're a force to be reckoned with. This could be the year that we may, just may, see a group of five team crack through to that college football playoff four that we've been waiting for for some time. I think this is the year. And since he, obviously, Luke Fickle getting a lot of buzz for that uh, USC job, we'll see what happens there. But I think that Cincinnati pulls this off. We've already discussed Georgia and Arkansas. Elsewhere in the SEC, you've got number 12, Ole Miss. At number one, Alabama. I mean, Bama's just sort of this machine. Ole Miss has given them a scare once or twice recently, if memory serves. They're ranked 12th. It's tough to go into Tuscaloosa and win no matter who you are. Are the Crimson Tide safe in this one, or could Ole Miss sneak up on them? I think they're safe. I think this is going to be an offensive showdown, to say the least. you got two Heisman-leading quarterbacks right now in Bryce Young and Matt Corral. So it's going to be really fun to watch these two dangerous playmakers in that one. As much as I would love to see Lane Kiffin get some revenge, you know, he used to be uh, the O coordinator and QB coach under Saban a few years back. As much as I'd love to see him come in and somehow come away with a victory for Ole Miss, I think the Tide take this one, but this is going to be a high-scoring affair, let me tell you. Big 12 Conference, Baylor at Oklahoma State, number 21 and 19, respectively. Your thoughts there? I think Oklahoma State comes away with that one. That rushing defense is definitely going to hold down Baylor on that side of the ball. And I really think home field advantage is going to come to, well, their advantage this week. Being in Stillwater, the Cowboys come away with a victory. I think you get yourself a two-possession game there because I think if that rushing D, that front seven holds up, it's going to be a good day for OSU. And because we are broadcasting from KOIL News Talk 1290 in Omaha, just down the road from Lincoln, which is where I'm heading tomorrow evening, for my cats against the Huskers. Northwestern is clearly the underdog. Nebraska favored by 12 points, according to Vegas. Here's the thing. Cats are 2-2, two and two, but have not looked impressive. Nebraska 2-3, and three, but they have looked more impressive. 
and two of their losses, one of them was to a, a very good Michigan State team, and that was a tight one in overtime. And then they really, I think, performed admirably on the road in Norman against OU. I think that Nebraska, despite that early stumble against Illinois, Nebraska is on the upswing, and I'm expecting to be part of a little sort of splash of purple in a sea of red. I got a go-catch from some Northwestern fans at the airport this morning, but we'll be few and far between at Memorial Stadium. Are we going to walk away disappointed tomorrow night, Matt? Yeah, I'm going to have some good news for everybody in the listening range out there in Omaha right now. It's going to be a good day for the Huskers, and I think it's a good uh, little warm-up before they have to take on uh, number 14 Michigan next week. Sorry, guys, it's not looking good for your boys in purple. Yeah, well, I mean, the defense has been a little bit suspect, the offense in particular. you got the third-string quarterback in because of uh, an injury suffered in the Duke game. So a lot to overcome, but in this rivalry, since Nebraska joined the Big Ten, these games are almost always close eight of the 10 matchups have been one score games and if that's the case i'll be thrilled i just hope that northwestern comes out on top i'll be cheering with all my heart for the purple but i think that your pick intellectually just objectively is probably the smart one but we'll see matt napolitano sports reporter fox news headlines 24 7 sirius xm channel 115 matt have a great week and enjoy the games and you enjoy it out in Lincoln. I will also be keeping an eye on my phone, score updates, Yankees, pennant races. It's pretty exciting, especially over in the American League. So could be a fun sports weekend. It'll be extra fun if somehow we can pull off this upset. Again, not, not holding my breath. But hope springs eternal. Hey, that's sports. That's the whole point. You hope, you root. We will be back here on Monday. For a brand new edition and a new week of the Guy Benson Show. Until then, enjoy your weekend. Good night from Omaha, Nebraska. It's the Guy Benson Show. Listen to be part of the conversation with me, Brian Kilmeade. I'll talk about the biggest stories of the day and get your take along with some of the biggest newsmakers around. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the podcast at BrianKilmeadeShow.com. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.